Kids, as you leave for Gospel Project, we hope you have a great time. I want you to know how much we love you. And thank you for those who are going to lead. If you have a Bible, please go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. As Todd prayed, that's where we'll be today and continue on. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chair in front of you. And we'll be on page 677 today. We'll be on page 677. My parents um, are here today. Would you wave your arms or something cool like that? Thank you. Um, my uh, dad has pastored in Oklahoma for almost 25 years and recently announced upcoming retirement. So pray for them as they figure out what next in life. And that church, it's called Henderson Hills. So glad you're here with us today. Can you hear me? Yes? It sounds really quiet up here. Turn us up, Mark. No? All right. Some of you got that. Can you hear me now? All right. We're ready to jam then. Thanks, Mark. Uh, last week in our study through the book of Philippians, we reached one of the real mountaintop passages about Jesus. If you want to know who Jesus is, then Philippians 2 is simply a passage you have to grapple with. The most important question you'll ever encounter, ever, is who is Jesus? That will define your meaning in life and where you spend eternity. As we said last week, verses 6 through 11 describe Jesus as pre-existing, shockingly humble, incarnate, meaning he's God in flesh, self-sacrificing, Dead, yet risen, exalted above all, worthy of worship, ruling and reigning as King, Savior, and Lord. That's a lot in just a few verses. These verses stun our imaginations with the reality that Jesus Christ left heaven, became a Jewish boy, lived a perfect life, died a horrendous sacrificial death, and three days later was vindicated by the Father as he rose from the dead to be exalted over all forever. Every human being who has ever lived or will ever live will one day see and acknowledge Jesus as the sovereign Lord of all. Immediately after this thrilling experience of considering Jesus in those verses, we find ourselves back in what seems to be the mundane stuff of everyday life in our passage for today. We quickly descend from the mountaintop majesty of Jesus in verses 6 to 11 to the lowlands of simple commands in verses 12 through 18. A list of commands such as work out your salvation, shine as lights by not complaining but clinging to the gospel, and rejoice in suffering. If you were to just sit down and read through the book, I think that you might find, at first glance, this shift feels like whiplash, violently slamming us back into the real world after giving us such an exalted view of Jesus Christ. But something far more profound is happening here that's easy to unintentionally gloss over. Uh, some of you may remember the movie Vantage Point. It's about eight, nine years old now, but in this film, an attempted assassination on the American president happens in the very opening scene of the movie. 
And then the rest of the movie slows down and shows that same assassination attempt from a variety of different angles and perspectives. And things you didn't notice in the first scene begin to come glaringly obvious as you look at the same event from multiple different points of view. That's, in a sense, what happens in this passage. We get this all-inspiring view of Jesus Christ and his humility, his death, and his exaltation. But then it's so easy to just breeze past the commands that follow because they feel like a honeydew list. But if we slow down, then what we'll find is actually happening is the passage is working out for us implications and applications of Jesus' life. It's calling us to obey the Father just like Jesus obeyed the Father. And so we're going to slow way down today and only cover two verses in order to look at them very carefully. Next week, uh, Brian Jerry will be preaching. We look forward to that, brother, as we look at those following two commandments that I mentioned. But for today, we'll only cover two verses, 49 words. But these 49 words, if I had understood them and applied them to my own life, I think I could have skipped a decade of spiritual frustration. It's an enormously significant passage. These are freeing, beautiful words. So look with me at Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now... Not only in my presence, but more, much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The topic, these important two verses surface, is that of spiritual growth. How do Christians make progress and mature? At various points in uh, our kids' lives, both of them have had on their walls in their room a growth chart. Any of you remember having one of those or perhaps have a, children, a child with one of those? This is where you, you mark on the wall or on the chart the little bit of progress that's made in height, and then you date it. And over time, you see really crazy things like one year they grow this much, and the next year this much, and the next year this much. It's really fun and encouraging to watch as a child grows. Have you ever wanted a spiritual growth chart? A way to measure the progress that you're making spiritually. Wouldn't that be cool? To be able to visibly see how am I maturing in Christ? Am I becoming more like him? Well, that's what verses 12 through 18 do. They serve as a spiritual growth chart. But these verses don't merely address our spiritual growth individually, but also our growth as a community of faith. We will know we're growing and maturing and progressively becoming more healthy if we see these verses fleshed out in the life of Church on Mill. So let's look closely at them today and we'll find that there is... A way in which Paul commends and commands and comforts. And all three are significant to us. First, uh, commend. 
The Apostle Paul, the man God used to write Philippians, says a really hard thing in verse 12. He says, work out your salvation. But before he does that, he commends the church at Philippi. Picking up on the truth that Jesus obeyed the Father, Paul says, in essence, as he thinks about this church that he started and he loved, it's probably the the church he was closest to of all the churches he began. He says, Philippians, you have a track record of obedience. When I think about you as a church, I think about people that are growing and maturing in Christ. When I think about you as a church, you're people that are less prideful and more humble. You're growing up in him. I'm confident because of this, you will keep obeying God's word. You've probably heard the idea of a compliment sandwich. Anybody used one of those this week? No? Okay. Maybe some others have. Allison, you have as a teacher. Yes? (laughs) Great. Here's the way they work. If you have something challenging to say to somebody, then you start first with a little bit of encouragement and affirmation. Then you slip the hard thing in, and then you finish with another word of encouragement. And I have found if the person you're talking to is teachable and humble, that this usually works. Now, of course, the two pieces of bread have to be honest. They've got to be legitimate. You can't just make them up. But if you can look at someone and commend good things in their lives and say something difficult and then commend again, that helps the difficult thing to go down well. That's what Paul does in this passage. I wonder if you would allow me for a moment, church, to commend you. I've made a list of things that are deeply encouraging to me as one of your pastors. We're not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. But by God's grace, we are healthy. We are growingly, growing in our Christ-likeness. And here's some evidences of that. I am consistently encouraged by your willingness to see new things in the scriptures, to take them to heart, and to work them out in life, whether that's our corporate life together or our individual lives. You welcome people that walk into this room with compassion and love, seemingly unaware of the things that can cause prejudice. Things like age and attire and language, ethnicity, religious or irreligious background. Everyone seems to be treated well as they walk into this room. You generously train men and women for biblical ministry, making sacrifices to do that so that we can send people out to other places. Very often I hear about men meeting with men and women meeting with women to follow Titus 2, to encourage each other, mentor each other, disciple each other. Not in some big program, but in initiation individually to help each other grow. The Word of God and the people of God are primary here. There are many other good things, but non-essential things that many churches find themselves so wrapped in that they lose sight of the mission of why the church exists. Every true church exists to glorify God by making disciples and growing them up into Christ. And you do that well. I'm so encouraged by that. 
And when people wander away from obeying Christ into sin, you pursue them gently, even when they may not reciprocate with Christian charity. Despite our relatively small size and limited facilities, we have a vast array of gospel-centered, productive, meaningful ministries. Friends, by God's grace, there's much to commend that the Lord is doing among us. Amen? But now the difficult thing to say. Church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we must work out our salvation. And this is so serious, we're told to do it with fear and trembling. And my sense is this needs to become much more important to many of us. So that's the command. Let's read it again, just so we make sure it's clear in our minds. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, in a a room with people this diverse, there's likely two very different questions popping into some of our minds. One is, what is salvation? If we're supposed to work something out, then what is it? But others likely are not asking that question. Perhaps you're asking, hang on a second, isn't salvation a work of grace? Let's take a few minutes on each of those questions. First, what is salvation? We're blessed every Sunday to welcome quite a few people who are new to the claims of Christ. And you may be asking what salvation is. Friend, if that's a question that you have, then you're about to hear some truly great news. The Bible from beginning to end teaches one unified story, the the story of a creator who's really wonderful. He made us to know and enjoy and image him. But very early on in this story, in Genesis, we find that people rebelled. One of the ways we rebel is we take good gifts of God and we turn them into ultimate things, thereby replacing him with the things that he's given us that we might enjoy and know him. The scriptures call that sin. So as human beings, we have a huge problem. All of us are created to know God, to enjoy God, to represent or to image God in his world. And yet in many ways, we're born into such a condition that we cannot do those very things. The scriptures tell us that we're born as slaves to sin, separated from God by our sin, and in desperate need of intervention, physically alive but spiritually dead. That's the condition every person you will ever meet is in, apart from Christ. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. Yet God is love, so he determined to do something about this condition. Jesus Christ, God himself, became a man, lived the life of obedience we should have lived, in order that he could then die the death for sin that we should all die. Three days later, he rose in victory over sin and death, demonstrating that everything he said was true and that the Father accepted the sacrifice of sin on our behalf. 
So what is salvation? Salvation is the miracle of being rescued from sin and its eternal consequences and delivered into a loving relationship with God. That is the greatest news you will ever hear. And it's true. Friend, if you have never made the decision to turn from sin and turn to Jesus, you can do so today. If you believe he came and died and rose again, and you're willing to turn from a life of sin and to turn to him as your only hope in your Lord. If you have questions about that, we'd love to stick around for a few minutes when the gathering is over and visit with you. We won't pressure you, but we'd love to tell you more about Jesus Christ. So that's what salvation is. It's a gift of God whereby we can be made right with him. The Bible describes this salvation as an instantaneous act of God. In one sense, people move from being a sinner to being a saint, from darkness to light in a single moment in time. And many times Christians talk about that as the moment of their conversion or when they became a Christian. And many times that's the way the Bible talks about salvation. But it's not the only way. And this is sometimes confusing to us. There's another sense in which we're told in the Bible that salvation is an ongoing act of God. And still another sense in which we're told that it's a future promise from God. So in other words, it's 100% correct to say, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. You with me? So how do you know which one is being talked about? Well, they're normally referred to in those different tenses as you read about them in the Bible. A Christian or a follower of Christ is someone who has been saved, who right now presently is being saved, and you can live with the confidence that you will be saved. So that is salvation. But others in the room, that's not the question you ask as you hear Philippians 2, 12, and 13 read. You don't ask that. Instead, you ask, isn't salvation all of grace? Do the hairs on the back of your neck stand up to read in the Bible? Work out your salvation. Do you feel the tension? there. If it's a gift of God, then how can you work it out? If salvation is something God does, then how do you have any part in it at all? Well, brothers and sisters, hear the instruction carefully. Work out your own salvation. It says work out, not work for. You see, we are powerless, completely helpless, enslaved to sin, spiritually dead, without hope, unable to comprehend or desire God. And while we were in that condition, Christ died for us. One of my greatest comforts is to know that I brought nothing to my salvation except my sin. Jesus brought everything else. So of course salvation is all of grace and in no way dependent upon my work. The same author who wrote Philippians said this in Romans chapter 4. Now to the one 
who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So that first sense in which we talked about salvation, that initial saving of coming to know Christ, becoming a Christian, being rescued out of sin, that is 100% the work of God. You did nothing. He chose you. He enabled you to be able to choose him. So you can rest assured that once you're saved, you'll always be saved. The conviction that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that is our only hope, is precisely what makes us a Christian church, not a Muslim mosque or a Mormon stake or a Catholic parish. That's what makes us Christians. But I fear Christians in our theological tribe often overstep the Bible's teaching and forget that the ongoing work of salvation that God is doing works within our work too. You see, while God doesn't ask us to work for our salvation, he does call us to work it out. And frankly, I'm not sure we take this anywhere near as serious as we ought. So here's what, here's what he's saying. Here's what he's getting at. Christians, grow up in your faith. Work hard to resist temptation and choose good. Labor every day for spiritual progress. One of the analogies the Bible uses for salvation and the process of growth is to compare us spiritually to the way we are physically. So the scriptures tell us when we're reborn, what are we? We're spiritual infants. And in the beginning, we need help with virtually everything. But as we grow up, we're supposed to be weaned from the bottle, get out of the diapers, quit using the binky, and sit up at the table like a big boy and a big girl and eat some steak, right? That's what Paul's saying. Do the work of growing up in Christ. Flesh out the fact that God has rescued you from sin by submitting yourself to him every moment of every day. Now, friends, this might sound hyper-spiritual, but it's the normal stuff of everyday life. It's when you wake up in the morning, before your feet ever hit the floor, you say, God, today's yours. God, I submit to you. God, apart from you, I can do nothing. God, I hate the alarm clock. Please help me not to have a crappy attitude today. <laughs> before you put physical food in your mouth, it's picking up the spiritual food of God's word and investing in the nourishment you need for the day. It's aiming in God's strength to obey every known command and reject every known temptation and bring every thought captive to obey Christ. Friends, these normal habits of Christianity are your responsibility. 
No one can do them for you. And you will not grow without them. This is how saved people grow. We commit our discipleship to God and then we commit ourselves to each other in our church membership. And we work hard together at the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. And then inevitably when suffering comes, we help each other work through the doubts and struggles that hardship brings in order that God could use that suffering to grow us up in him. So in a nutshell, to work out your own salvation is to build every day and everything in every day around the passionate pursuit of knowing God more. Now, do you see the connection to the previous passage? There's this little word that seems out of place. It says that Jesus obeyed. That's what we're being told to do. Just like our Savior obeyed the Father, Christians, we are to obey the Father. The majestic mountaintop experience of seeing Jesus in the preceding verses is intended to motivate us to seek to be like him. His, his humble self-sacrifice, his way of setting aside his own desires and putting the needs of others first, his absolute commitment to the mission of God, his attractive and winsome holiness, his rebuke of judgmental legalistic religious people, his compassion for the broken, his love for the needy and the poor. Working out our own salvation is learning every day to see the world as Jesus does, to think like Jesus does, to do what Jesus does. Now, critical to this whole matter of spiritual progress is understanding that spiritual growth happens in Christian community. In other words, growth in godliness is group work. Don't you hate group work in school? Well, growing up in Christ involves group work. Now, why would that be? Well, an illustration that some of us in the room have experienced well. Those of you in the room who are married or you've been married, you thought you were pretty great before you got married, didn't you? Guys in particular tend to think they've got it all together. They know how to lead. They're all wise and they are humble, and they're happy to tell you they're humble. And then you wake up next to somebody. And over time, that somebody reveals to you all the brokenness and ugliness and idolatry in your heart. And you realize you don't know anything. God uses marriage to help us mature. Right, guys? But he uses the church even more. The areas where my character is not like Christ yet, always I find it coming out in the context of relationships. I can be all alone and think I'm pretty good with Jesus. But when I'm around other people, then the areas where there still needs to be growth and development tend to come out. That's why this is a group project. That's how God has designed it to work. 
Jesus humbled himself, he suffered, and he died. But then he was exalted. Friend, your path to spiritual progress, your road to Christlikeness will be exactly the same as Jesus. You have to humble yourself, die to yourself. And only then will you find God lifting you up. That's the way life works in the kingdom of God. It's spending an afternoon playing dominoes with an older member who can't leave her home anymore. It's teaching a preschool class where screamo music sounds calming. It's humbly listening as a sister in Christ tells you with tears that you've sinned against her. It's sticking around after the gathering to ask a friend, what did you get today out of the sermon? And then following up during the week to say, how's that working itself out in your life? How can I pray for you? It's going with other college students to share the gospel on the campus when you'd much rather hide in a corner. It's meeting up with a brother in Christ for a drink and asking direct questions about how's your spiritual progress. Friends, Jesus humbled himself. He served. He suffered. And he died. Your progress in the kingdom is not going to be found by clamoring for power. By doing great things so that other people can see you and think you're great. But in particular, by doing the things that no one else will notice. By humbling yourself. Trusting that God will raise you up. So Christian, are you growing? If there was a spiritual growth chart here today, and there was a point marked on it for September, what is today? 25th? 2015, no, I'm not done, a year ago, the mark was September of 2015, would you be a little more Christ-like today, a year later? How do you know? Wouldn't that be great to know? One key way to know is to look around you at the quality of your relationships with fellow church members. Do you find yourself in relationships with people who are not like you simply because God has rescued you and that person from sin and brought you into membership in the local church? Do you remember the last time you gently challenged somebody to obey God without concern for the social constraints that might be put on that relationship then? Are you regularly discipling someone? Not because you have to, but because there's joy in doing it. Are you giving more resources to your church today than you were a year ago? With joy. Are newer members of our church finding that you're working them into your life? These are great indicators of spiritual progress. When there's unity, even as we struggle to grow up in Christ and get along with each other, then we're growing. 
when we find that we're quicker to listen, slower to speak, slower to get angry, then we're growing. When we're close enough in community that we actually hurt each other and we don't immediately run away to the church down the street, but we stay and we work it out, we try to understand each other, we forgive, and we're growing up in Christ. The slow but steady movement from selfishness to selfless loving commitment to each other. These are the great indicators of spiritual growth. Daily dying that the life of Jesus would shine in us. Brothers and sisters, if you are taking anything in your life more seriously than your walk with Christ and your membership commitment to help others grow up in him, then God would have you to reassess your priorities today. Nothing is supposed to be more important than that. Honoring Christ, growing up in him, helping others do the same. This is why God's letting you draw another breath. This is what life is for. So work out your own salvation. Now, frankly, my experience with this has been it is really hard. There's a reason Jesus said, take up your cross daily. It's hard work. In fact, I think if the passage stopped there, we would be in need of utter despair. But it doesn't stop there. Because God has given us an unshakable comfort. And here's that comfort. We can work out our own salvation confidently because God is working in us constantly. Look at verse 13. It says, For, or because, or since, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, Christian, because God is working in you. Brothers and sisters, God is on your side. He's not an angry, distant father constantly disappointed in you. The creator is in your corner. So as you think about this hard idea that daily your job in life is to work out your salvation, you can do that with courage because God promises to be working in you. You're not drumming up something that isn't there. You're simply seeking to flesh out what God is already doing in your life. So in Christ, brothers and sisters, we really can change. We really can learn to live every day as if Jesus were walking in our shoes. Why? Because he is. Christ in you. He who began a good work in you will bring it about. Right now, God is supplying the power for spiritual progress, enabling both what we do 
and even our desire to do it. Now, experientially, it doesn't always feel that way, though, does it? I don't wake up every day with warm fuzzies, hearing God audibly speaking to me. Maybe you do, but you're weird. If so, doesn't normally happen like that. This disconnect that we sometimes feel between verse 12 and verse 13 and not understanding how the concepts work together is what caused me personally for many, many years to be saved but not to be really changing. For some reason, I thought spiritual growth will work like becoming a Christian did. It'll happen in a moment. I don't have to do anything to make it happen. It just happens. Somehow sitting in a room with other people will bring about spiritual work. Maybe if I sleep on my pillow at night, then I'll learn it. I'll pray when I feel like praying. I'll go to church when it feels good. I'll serve when other people are serving me. Have you ever had any of those thoughts? I didn't understand that I have a role in the process of growth. And so personally, for most of my teenage years, I vacillated between short-term encouragement and long-term doubt. Not understanding that God is to be taken at his word. If God says, I am working out, well, I'm working in you in order that you would work out your salvation. My job is to take him at his word, to trust him, to believe him. And when I don't desire God to say, God, help me to desire you. God, be faithful to work in me because I'm having trouble working out. You see, friends, even that prayer, that desperate prayer, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. Those are the things God uses to work out our salvation. God expects us to work hard at growing up in Christ, to pursue spiritual habits with tenacity. The ongoing aspect of salvation is different than the initial work of salvation. This one, you had nothing to do with. This one, you are a part of it. You're not saving yourself. But by obeying God, he is working out into all areas of your life and your character what he's already worked in you. Brothers and sisters, work out what God is working in. And do so with the full confidence that God will bring about your spiritual maturity. Let me encourage you to start today by applying this passage very simply. We're going to end a little bit early today. And instead of rushing out for food, if you're not a believer in Christ, 
Would you take a few minutes to say to somebody around you, or walk up to me, I'll be on the patio. I want to know more about Jesus. I've still got some questions. Some of what you say is really weird. And let's talk. And if you already are a follower of Christ, would you spend a few minutes with someone around you and say, here's an area of my life where I have not been working out my salvation. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, this is a challenging passage in which we're told our highest priority is to honor Christ by working out because you are working in. Father, there are an endless amount of things that we can spend our time on, many of them good things. And yet, how quickly and easily we can forget the role that we have as Christians in growing up spiritually and in encouraging our brothers and sisters in Christ to do the same. Father, forgive us for taking our part in this process too lightly. We long to be a church family full of spiritually healthy, vibrant, mature brothers and sisters in Christ. So help us to grow up in you. We also pray for those among us who are still unsure about Christ. We pray, Father, that you would open minds and hearts so that the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ might be seen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.